The following program is brought to you by We Are Many. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org. All right, well, I actually think it's, it's, it's rather fortuitous uh, that uh, last night during Amy Goodman's speech uh, that she reminded us of the, the real legacy of Maya Angelou and uh, Pete Seeger a little bit because these are two amazing progressive or radical artists who have left us over the past few months and uh, unfortunately they're not the only ones who have died just over the past six months. It's, it's not just Seeger and Angelou but we've lost Fred Ho, we've lost uh, uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, Amiri Baraka, and uh, even just a few weeks ago, uh, Ruby Dee, the great uh, civil rights uh, activist and actor. And all of, these, uh, all of these artists, I think, are reminders of what it means to make relevant art in very oppressive circumstances, uh, and what it means to make engaged art, art that engages with the world around it, and explores that intersection between the world at large and art as such, or what we think of as art. Uh, taken together, I think they show how broad this tradition is, especially here in the United States. I mean, we have, uh, just in that, that laundry list I mentioned earlier, we have mentioned poetry and literature represented. We have film and theater, we have music. Painting is certainly part of that tradition. And I think the deaths, unfortunately, of all of these uh, people uh, present a very urgent question, what I think is a very urgent question, which is what next? Will the tradition that they represent and have helped build and have helped add to over the course of their lifetimes, will that tradition continue? Can there be a new generation of people's art and political struggle? And this is by no means a foregone conclusion. The past 30 years, I would argue, have been very, very cruel and very hostile towards what we could call the radical artistic tradition. Uh, the rise of neoliberalism, the massive consolidation of resources in the hands of the wealthy few, as well as their expropriation from our hands, the hands of the working class, the hands of oppressed people. This has been just really the reality and it's become the new normal over the course of the past 30, 35, 40 years. And it's mean, it means that we've been divorced to a great degree from one of the best methods of presenting an alternative vision of society. I mean, we confront backward ideas at every turn and we're right to do so in culture. You know, we're right to criticize racism, sexism, and homophobia in music or film or, or TV shows. We're right to do the cultural appropriation, all the rest. We're right to do so. But I would also argue that we've, we've, we've really forgotten that conceiving of a different social order and a different world is basically an act of imagination. That yes, it has to be rooted in material facts and material realities, but eventually you have to make that cognitive leap into imagining something more based on what exists right now. But because of the past 30 years, uh, per Frederick Jameson, what he quotes, because of the past 30 years, we've gotten to a point where it's easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism. This is why I think there's so many apocalyptic themes running through popular culture right now. So what I'd like to do is suggest ways of reclaiming this tradition for our side, for the left. And I want to do that in three ways. First, by briefly reaffirming the necessity of artistic expression in the human experience and looking, the way, looking at ways that oppressive systems can manipulate that relationship. Two, I want to examine some recent and historical examples of how art and political struggle have crossed over both spontaneously and consciously. And then third, uh, finally, I want to look at uh, some of the ways in which the lessons from these struggles uh, can be generalized for us to use today. So first of all, art has always been a central component of how humans express social consciousness. And social consciousness, when I say that, I don't just mean like being aware of the issues. I mean social consciousness in a way that like how human beings, how we conceive of ourselves, in, both in relation to each other and the world at large. When I talk about social consciousness, it's like a broad, totalizing theme. And now during primitive times, we scratched we scratched paintings on walls, we wrote songs, and we wrote stories. 
as a way to sort of mediate what I would have to imagine are very profound anxieties uh, of, of about what it meant to be living in a primitive society. Yes, it was a classless world, but you were also uh, subject to the vicissitudes of, of the weather, famine, starvation, and everything else. This caused a great amount of anxiety, especially because we didn't have anything like you know science back then. So we needed to rely on our imaginations in order to give ourselves a place in the world uh, that sort of puts us at peace and makes sense to us. We. That's part of art's more complex nature. We create it, but it's also an attempt to bond with each other, to connect with something bigger than ourselves, and I think, I think actually connect with something bigger than the sum of our parts in some total of what humanity can actually do. Uh, Maynard Solomon, the Marxist art critic, uh, he described this nature, I think, really well when he said that art simultaneously reflects and transcends. It says yes and cries no. It is created by history and creates history. Points toward the future by reference to the past and by liberation of the latent tendencies of the present. So that's all true, I think. But what happens when you take that, that nature of art, and you drop it into the middle of a class society, an oppressive society, a society that doesn't want us, that actually militates against many of the things that art does, which is give us a little glimpse of what it is to be something other than ourselves and something more than just the mundane realities that we have to deal with. What happens when you take all of that and you put it in a society that doesn't want all of that in our consciousness? And, well, I think we see that on a day-in, day-out basis in the way that capitalism actually relates to art. On the one hand, what are the first programs put on the chopping block when they want to cut school budgets? It's arts, it's music, it's poetry. Um, we see we have a national endowment for the arts in this country, but it, it is anemically funded. And it doesn't even have a regular head at this point, it hasn't for the past two years. Uh, we see it in the Detroit Institute of Arts looking to actually sell off its magnificent collection, including some amazing paintings, in order to help the city of Detroit get out of debt, which isn't even worth it. It's not even going to work at first, um, or at all, really. It's not even going to put a dent in the whole debt of, of the city of Detroit. I'd argue we even saw the mask slip very much from, uh, from the big man himself, uh, Obama, when he was speaking at a, uh, a, uh, it was a speaking engagement about six months ago, and he said that he did not consider, this was in the relation to jobs, he did not consider art history to be a viable major for people looking for a real career. This, basic, this says a lot about how capitalism, how this system, how America views art. And so we have that on one hand, but on the other hand, we have the profound commodification of art. We, and how does that result in the way that we we talk about art, we end up talking about it mostly by the numbers. You know, how much box office draw did this film bring in? Uh, how many records has this artist sold? How much did this painting sell for? We talk about it like that, but we don't talk about it in relationship to the imagination. This is what capitalism, I think, does to art, because if art is a method of transmitting social consciousness, then the ideas contained within that social consciousness need to be the ideas of the ruling class. And this is something that has preoccupied a great many radical thinkers, particularly after World War II, in the latter half of the 20th century. People like Theodore Adorno, Max Horkheimer, uh, Bertolt Brecht, uh, Walter Benjamin, Ernst Bloch, on and on and on. And the question that preoccupied them was how mass culture could be used to actually ingratiate the audience to the ruling system and give its audience a, a sense of peace with the established order. It's a way of sort of creating a mental link aesthetically enforcing the dominant order. Now Benjamin, in his uh, essay, The Work of Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction, he uses a very extreme example of this, and that's Nazi Germany. And if you think about Nazi Germany, this was a regime that actually had a very, very keen understanding of aesthetics. It, the films of Leni Riefenstahl, uh, the, the, the massive the Nuremberg rallies with these striking banners, these sharp uniforms and everything, and they utilized this as a way to give that sector of the population that they couldn't really trot under their boot, they, that sector of the population was able to, they were able to present them with a sense of identification with the regime through that use of aesthetics. Now, most orders obviously aren't as extreme 
as Nazi Germany, but I'd say that any social order that thrives off inequality applies basically the same logic when it comes to aesthetics and art. A key example for me is Muzak. Back in the 1960s, yeah, this, is, this was music that was deliberately formulated to lull listeners into a sense of false security in order to make them okay with spending more money. You know, I mean, they, they, they conducted focus groups and psychological studies to try to find a way, okay, how can we make people uh, uh, okay with uh, saying goodbye to their money, basically. And the same basic idea goes into what, you know, how record labels decide what's going to sell the most. You know, what are they going to promote the most? This is why a great many radicals have identified the arts not just as something to be analyzed, but as a forum for political struggle. It's important for us to understand it like that. Antonio Gramsci, the Italian Marxist, he identified the dual character of popular culture, that it could be both a site for exploration and you know, forging a new identity and self-expression and everything, but it could also be a way to enforce conformity within society because of the ideological component that comes, comes with it. But when conformity becomes more and more of a questionable act, we see that seesaw start to tip more in the favor of redefinition and uh, uh, finding a new identity and such like that, the progressive elements, we would say. And we've actually seen this on display quite a bit over the past, I'd say, three, four years, something like that, with the Occupy movement, the movement of the squares in Europe and the Middle East, particularly because all of these have involved basically the reclamation of public space. This is designed artistic space that's supposedly for public use, right? But as soon as people try to use it, I mean, but it's also highly regulated and things like that by the state, highly patrolled by police, so on and so forth. And then when that becomes sort of liberated, if you will, for a moment, acts that had previously been verboten uh, start to become commonplace. Elements in society segregated from each other start to meet. Now this is actually kind of a, 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 almost a festive atmosphere that I think most of us have probably experienced at large protests. You know, there's a feeling of elation, a feeling, you know, cool costumes, bread and puppet, all that kind of stuff. Maybe, some, maybe a random folk singer walking around with a guitar. All of this is, it's this kind of festival atmosphere. And it actually has quite a bit in common with the theories of a Soviet literary critic named Mikhail Bakhtin. I don't know if people are, he's, he's not very well, uh, well read in the West, but uh, I think that needs to change. Um, Bakhtin came up with, well, didn't come up with, he investigated these ideas of the carnivalesque and how that can become a forum for subversion. Um, and this was noted by the Turkish academic and radical uh, Mede Yenulu in uh, an article this past, um, this past uh, uh, winter for uh, radical philosophy. And she talks about it in relation to uh, the, the massive protest that swept Turkey last year, actually almost exactly a year ago. And uh, so she's describing this and also relating the theories of Bakhtin to the reader. And she says, for Bakhtin, in this process, not only is the world turned upside down, but things are infused with new meanings. Through creative theatrical expressions, life experiences are overturned, transformed, and subverted in a joyful manner by those whose voices and energies have hitherto been suppressed. Carnival brings a different sense of a world where uninhibited communication between diverse groups and free interaction and expression are fortified. Opposites are intermixed. Social etiquettes are invalidated and pieties are profaned. As the voice of authority is profaned, it is also voided. Alternative and suppressed voices gain a new legitimacy. Bakhtin finds in Carnival a site of resistance to authority and sees it as the site where political change can take place. Indeed, this is what transpired. This, indeed, what has transpired in the demonstrations is the joyful subversion of Prime Minister Erdogan's authority. And this act of infusing things with new meanings, I think, could be witnessed very easily. The, the viral video that came out of uh, the Gezi the occupation of Gezi Park. I don't know if people saw this, but the the Chapulchu Choir performing uh, "Can You Do You Hear the People Sing" from Les Misérables. Now, Les Misérables, I think it's a. I, I like it quite a bit. I think it's a. I, I liked the. I think the music is stunning. I like the film quite a bit. But it's always been a piece of art about revolution rather than for revolution. All of a sudden, when the second verse, when they transfer that into Turkish, when they sing the first verse in Turkish again, all of a sudden, the new meaning comes in. 
and it starts to become a song about or not just about revolution, but for revolution also. Now, I'd argue these kinds of redefinitions become more commonplace during social uprisings because they allow a collective sense of ownership over society, right? At least just a glimpse of it. And this is why so much great art comes out of these moments of social uprising. We know about the 30s, the 60s, so on and so forth. And it's also why I think public rebellion is just as much an aesthetic act as it is political and social. I think it necessarily brings those things with it. I think the situationists got it right. These are people who went around during the general strike in 1968 putting slogans on walls saying, all power to the imagination and revolutionize everyday life. Because they understood at times when struggle really picks up, the boundaries between art and everyday life become very porous and they start to redefine each other in many ways. Now while this process can seem to spontaneously explode as struggle ascends, I'd also say that the opposite is, is also very true. Space for this kind of reinvention can contract when struggle is on the decline, and I think the classic example of this is Pussy Riot, actually. You know, I mean, this, it, it, it's, it's worth stepping back and rethinking that, like, reminding ourselves that when they first stormed onto the world stage, they were incredibly subversive and potent. I mean, this, this awesome mixture of punk and riot girl and, you know, the tradition of the Russian avant-garde, and they were founded at the height of the Russian democracy movement against Putin's stealing of the elections. But as that movement declined, they were kind of left out in the open. They were kind of left hanging in many ways. And so they kind of became low-hanging fruit for the Russian regime to crack down upon, arrest, so on and so forth. And the media and liberal establishment, particularly here in the West, uh, sort of turned the three women that went to jail into figureheads and divorced them very much from the rest of the Pussy Riot Collective. Um, and so, as a result, Tolokno and Alyokina, the two uh, women that spent the most time in jail, they went in as revolutionaries and came out as liberals. They, they started endorsing oil tycoons to run against Putin, uh, you know, hobnobbing with Samantha Power and Hillary Clinton, and arbiters of you know, empire and, and American power. Um, now, it doesn't mean it was any less right to stand in solidarity with them. It absolutely was the right thing to do, and I think it may continue to be. Um, but it's worth asking what might have happened if the Russian democracy movement hadn't faded but would have kept on the ascendancy and provided a counterbalance to the influence of sort of the liberal establishment or the establishment liberals, we may want to say more, more specifically. This is why I think the question of a radical counterculture is inextricably tied up with questions of radical organization. Because while art certainly can't substitute for struggle or activism, I don't think this... Uh, it's worth asking, I think, what it means for artists to organize in concert with movements. I think it's a, this, this is not a, a sufficiently explored question. And just for the record, I don't think this means going to artists and telling them that all their work needs to be political. Far from it. I, I think that actually, on the contrary, there's room for all kinds of art in the radical imaginary, precisely because it confirms what Marx said was his favorite uh, slogan from the Greeks, which is, nothing human is alien to me. There's room for love songs in, the, in, in a radical understanding of art, in radical organization of art. There's room for art about all kinds of, uh, all kinds of things. Um, because, like I said, when art and struggle feed off of each other, the meanings start to shift and the boundaries become porous. And there's actually a great history of radicals organizing among artists and, or, and artists organizing in concert with radical groups and radical struggles and to the point where sometimes they start to bleed over into each other. Uh, Michael Denning, in his book, The Cultural Front, I would highly recommend this book. It's really, really an incredible, it's big, but it's, uh, it, it, it's really worth the read, um, talking about the culture of the 1930s. Uh, and this is how he paints sort of how the uprisings of 1934 uh, played out culturally in the US. He, he, I'm gonna quote him. The artists and workers among the left formed proletarian literary clubs, workers theaters, camera clubs, film and photo leagues, composers collectives, ran, red dance troops, and revolutionary choruses the proletarian avant-garde of the Depression. 1934 saw a flowering of literary magazines that published proletarian stories, poems, songs, and cartoons, Blast, Anvil, Dynamo, Partisan Review, Left Front. And while the names of these clubs really aren't well remembered, certainly the people affiliated with them are Woody Guthrie, John Steinbeck, uh, Pete Seeger, so on, Billie Holiday, so on and so forth. 
And there's a great many of other examples uh, throughout history of the organized left organ using art to organize and organizing with artists. I mean, be it the Little Red Songbook of the industrial workers of the world, the way that Russian futurists and suprematists would, uh, they sought to sort of drive the Russian Revolution forward aesthetically and create, you know, take this social explosion and create more aesthetic room for themselves. Uh, the International Federation of Independent and Revolutionary Arts. This is a really overlooked organization that I think merits a lot more examination. It was founded by Diego Rivera and Andre Breton, uh, along with uh, people in the Fourth International, basically anti-Stalinist uh, uh, Marxists in the 1930s. Um, and it was pretty much stillborn because World War II came along right after it was um, right after it was founded uh, and sort of mashed it into the dirt, but it had uh, some sections that lasted well past World War II, uh, most notably in Egypt. Egypt's, Egyptian surrealism has a very rich history that I don't think uh, we know uh, nearly enough about. Uh, we have the black arts movement of the 1960s. We have rock against racism in the UK and here in the United States. Uh, the, the Chicago Women's Liberation Union rock band, the visual art of ACT UP, on and on and on. Uh, all these held in common an outlook between that dynamic between art and everyday life. Uh, David Widgery, uh, one of the founders of Rock Against Racism, he describes the campaign like this in the 1970s. On one level, Rock Against Racism was an orthodox, anti-racist campaign simply utilizing pop music to kick political slogans into the vernacular. But on another level, it was a jailbreak. We aimed to rescue the energy of Russian revolutionary art, surrealism, and rock and roll from the galleries, the advertising agencies, and the record companies, and use them again to change reality, as had always been intended. This is our tradition, this is our history. And I think it's important, it's not just important for us, but I'd argue it's important for arts and culture generally, because this is how art stays relevant. This is how art stays dynamic and vibrant. So the question is, how do we get it to happen again? I have no fucking clue. <laughs> I honestly, there's no pat answer for it. But I do think part of it is understanding the examples we laid out, Gezi Park, Pussy Riot, and everything, continuing to stand in solidarity with them as we go forth. Um, but it's, there's also, we need to understand that there's a lot of s steps that we can't skip, particularly because neoliberalism has made us have to start from scratch. Uh, but I think there's struggles that we can learn from in the here and now, such as, some of these struggles are about basically defending our right to art, such as defending arts, arts programs in schools. Um, some of it is defending artists as they organize as workers. So like art school academics, when they go out on strike, we need to support them. When uh, retail workers at Guitar Center try to unionize, as they've done in several locations already, we support them because a better living condition for artistically inclined workers means they have more time and more resources to create better art, right? And some of these struggles are actually both, I would argue. In the past few years, we've seen a great number of uh, city orchestra musicians walking out on the job because uh, management in most, I mean, New York, Detroit, Chicago, the Bay Area, Louisville, Minneapolis, it's happened all over the country, really, because man management is trying to turn those screws onto them. And um, solidarizing with them means uh, defending their right, not just, not just defending their right to a good living, but defending our right to world-class and affordable art, right? You know? And I think, I'm gonna wrap up on this. I think probably the most important part uh, the struggle that can be generalized, generalized the most around art uh, is actually those moments when we can defend it from the encroachments of capitalism and imperialism. And I'd say probably the best example of that is cultural boycott and divestments and sanctions of Israel. Now, we support, it's right to support BDS first and foremost because the Palestinians have asked us to do it. First and foremost, They've asked all people of good conscience to boycott Israel in solidarity with them, and as people of good, good conscience, we respond accordingly. Uh, but there's also, I think, something accomplished artistically in BDS. Because when we deny oppressive regimes the right to aesthetic cover, to present themselves as nice bastions of enlightenment and everything, when we deny them the ability to do that, we take the dynamic that Benjamin described in Nazi Germany and flip it flip it over. It's no, longer, it's no longer politics becoming aestheticized, it's art becoming politicized and democratized. And in doing so, we allow art to actually stand on its own terms. 
And that can have a knock-on effect in pushing art toward progressive, uh, progressive and radical directions. Uh, and we can see that in the example of South Africa, actually. BDS in South Africa created the space for the specials to record Free Nelson Mandela. It created the space for Artists United Against Apartheid to come together and uh, record I Ain't Gonna Play Sun City, so on and so forth. Um, despite what we're told, uh, endorsing cultural boycott and just generally speaking about art politically and relating to it politically, materially, I don't think it hinders creative voices. I think it amplifies them. And I think Remy, who's going to be talking right after I'm done in about 15 seconds, is, uh, he's going to be actually showing, uh, sh showing that to us. I, I think he's, he's a really good example of that. I think he reminds us of how incendiary art can be when we make those connections. And I think it's incredibly important for us to make those connections because it's not just about the liberation of art. It's about the liberation of us. And it's about the role that art has always played in giving us a purpose existentially and so on and so forth. I think that's a world worth fighting for. Um, so I'm going to do a little bit more of like an unorthodox talk today. I am going to start with uh, a piece on cultural boycott. Um, so I'm a Palestinian poet, but I also organize on cultural boycott. So I thought it'd be important to talk about my experience as a, as a Palestinian artist and, and also the kind of organizing. So I'll start with a poem, then kind of do 15 minutes on the trajectory of cultural boycott, the role of artists, why we need to act, the integration of, of arts into our struggles, and then end with a piece on divestment that's a little bit more animated, but then gives another different tone um, to that. So this poem is called, um, This Poem Will Not End Apartheid. Um, and there's a lot of people that say things like, you know, art is above politics and we need to keep it separate. And um, this is kind of angry and explanatory. <laughs> Um, and this addresses cultural boycott specifically, and, and uh, I'm also on the organizing committee for the U.S. campaign for the academic and cultural boycott of Israel. Um, and one thing that I, I like in my talk that I'm going to talk about is that I don't, you know, wake up on Monday and say I'm a poet. On Tuesday, I'm a Palestinian. On Wednesday, I'm the son and grandson of refugees. On Thursday, you know, like I don't. To me, like they're all very interwoven and interrelated, and it's not like you just put on a different kind of hat. Um, so this piece is called "This Poem Will Not End Apartheid." This poem, this poem will not end apartheid. My words, no matter how beautiful, clever, or carefully strung together, will not end the occupation, allow the refugees to return, or create equality within Israeli society. The status quo, it's a fantasy, telling us it's okay to sit on our hands, called political art propaganda, rather than those who politicize our lives, propagandists. Every American should ask themselves this question, why are bombs and white phosphorus getting dropped on open-air prisons with money that should be going to pay for your medical expenses? Mm -hmm. And dear academics and leftists, I appreciate your books on Israeli massacres, but you refuse to take the bullets out of IDF guns with your stances. The problem is not just the occupation or putting a better face on Zionism. Because 750,000 Palestinians were ethnically cleansed before those settlements were created, half of them before Israel was even created. We don't need another book explaining the situation. We need a lesson plan to stop the next bomb from dropping. Silence is complicity. Over-intellectualization tells us to theorize on the power of art. While farmers are kicked off land, children are stolen on the way to school, people are caged in, beaten and split from loved ones, bombed and broken in open-air prisons, bought and paid for. With our tax dollars, we're part of the problem. That's not theoretical. I don't want to hug a segregationist, wave to at a separate water fountain, or appeal to from the back of the bus. A day will come, I swear to you all, when Zionists cower in embarrassment, deny involvement like those who profited off of Stephen Biko's lifeless body and Bobby Sands' empty stomach. So yes. I'm going to boycott all Israeli products and go to the root of the conflict because settlements are just the branches of a Zionist program. Every 729 cultural institution and dialogue farce, from Sabra to Ahava, Max Brunner to Aroma, SodaStream to Motorola, signing that two-year contract stacks up little to 66 years of continued ethnic cleansing. Finally, to all you artists, 
building bridges between apartheid and normalization. You served an agenda which rebrands colonialism as enlightened liberalism, mm -hmm. concerts, raves, and ballets in Israel's Sun City, a haven and party stop for pink washers who callously ignore Palestinian LGBTQ groups fighting against all systems of oppression. Palestinian civil society has spoken. Don't cross this picket line or cash in that paycheck signed apartheid. Put down stolen beauty, cancel that gig, and join the rest of us on the right side of history. So for better or for worse, I construct a talk a lot like I do a poem. So if it sounds angry, uh, just know that I'm shattering stereotypes as a Palestinian. Uh, so, um, like a lot of times as artists, and I'm gonna speak more, you know, from like the, uh, I guess like the, the, the position of an artist, and I'm gonna talk a little bit about like art as propaganda and how Israel uses that, and I'm gonna uh, include a lot of examples of culture boycott and, and campaigns that have kind of formed, and you know, as, a, as an example of what uh, art and activism collectively uh, looks like. So as artists, we're often, you know, we enter this medium as a way to start a conversation, uh, to build bridges, uh, we're dialoguing with the global community, but it's important to say that no true dialogue, cultural or otherwise, can exist when there's no distinction between occupier and occupied, oppressor and oppressed, those implementing a system of domination and those forced to live under it. Um, so when your voice, your artistic voice, is being used to normalize occupation, to reaffirm apartheid, uh, or keep other people's face down in the mud, you have an obligation to stand up and alter those choices and act against it. Um, and it's also essential to recognize that living in the United States, we are not silent actors. It's our government that gives $3.4 billion a year in military aid to Israel. We send over Apache helicopters and Hellfire missiles and cluster bombs and other weapons that are used uh, to bomb a civilian population in an open air prison. We have preferential trade agreements with an apartheid regime and we act as Israel's veto inside and outside of the UN. Palestinian people are not victims in need of aid, they're an occupied and oppressed people in need of freedom, and our tax dollars, our community investments, and our campus investments are standing in the way of that freedom. Um, and so cutting direct lines of complicity with occupation and refusing the oppressor to use your voice uh, as a way to whitewash its crimes against an indigenous people is not a favor uh, being done, it's an ethical imperative. Um, and talking, you know, when, and I'm gonna do in like the last poem, it's not about a nation state or a people, but it's what's being done to a people. Mm -hmm. So whether we're standing with indigenous people and against the continued confiscation of native land and resources, fighting against police brutality within our own communities, stop and frisk in New York City, um, militarism, US militarism in Iraq and Afghanistan, the drone bombing of Pakistan, uh, Yemen and Somalia, transphobia and homophobia in our neighborhoods, or gender violence on college campuses, what binds socially conscious people together is working against systems of of injustice, um, and that is not excluded from the artistic paradigm. That's something that's integrated uh, within it. Um, so art is not above politics. I don't need to say that as much to this crowd, but art is political. As an artist, I'm not immune to environmental realities, and I don't deserve a free pass simply because I write a poem. Whether or not you're leveraging, as, as Alex said, whether or not you're leveraging your art in its specific content to challenge systems of oppression, we all have to stand up and act in some way or another. Um, so before getting into cultural boycott, uh, it's, it's crucial to acknowledge that Israel understands uh, the idea of art as propaganda uh, better than most nations. Yes. It recognizes yes. the utility of using art to whitewash its crimes against Palestinians. This is why you've had an Israeli minister who said, we see no difference between culture and Hasbara or propaganda. It's why you have um, the deputy uh, director, um, uh, the, dep the, the deputy director general for cultural affairs in the Israeli foreign ministry that said to the New York Times, uh, we'll send out theater artists uh, and exhibits to the world to present Israel's prettier face. So we're not seen of as, quote, purely within the context of war. Um, now, what the, the cultural minister left out is that many of these artists uh, who receive foreign um, funding from the foreign ministry are made to sign contracts as service providers. Now, as service providers, uh, they have to promote the, quote, policy interests of the state of Israel. Mm -hmm. They don't promote, quote, the policy interests of the state of Israel and its mission throughout the world. Um, then it's violation of that, of, 
it's in violation of that contract and action can be taken against them. Um, so in many ways, these groups and artists are essentially paid propaganda agencies um, from dance troops to musicians mm -hmm. to theater organizations. Um, now, on the U.S. front, there's way too much to get into, um, but it's gone from Israel and Zionist groups paying people $2,000 a month uh, to, to go on Twitter to tweet propaganda about Israel, uh, to sending out 100 global ambassadors uh, to combat Israeli apartheid week, to normalization and dialogue projects on college campuses that are used as a counterweight for Students for Justice in Palestine, um, rather than um, divesting or deshelving campaigns or actually taking action uh, that can be in solidarity with indigenous people. Um, and yet, while Israel and Zionist groups uh, in the U.S. are dumping countless dollars into pro-apartheid efforts, the Solidarity Movement um, has mobilized across the world with little to, no, uh, 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 little to no funding and have seen effective results in every path uh, that they've chosen. Um, now, in South Africa, a cultural boycott, uh, and as well as sports boycott, was seen as stripping away the cloak of invincibility from the apartheid regime. No longer could business go on as usual, no longer could the status quo remain, no longer could this myth of a, a, a liberal, enlightened uh, South African regime that was implementing a system of apartheid, no longer could that be presented uh, to the world. Um, and when cultural boycott, uh, for, for those, okay, I talk too much, so I'm gonna cut that out. Um, so, <laughs> all right, I'm gonna cut that out. Okay, cool. Um, hey, let me look here. Yeah, okay. Um, so eight years on, we've seen an enormous amount of uh, successes on the cultural boycott front. And it's also important to say that, uh, so in 2004, PACB, the Palestinian campaign for the academic and cultural boycott of Israel, called for a comprehensive boycott of Israeli academic uh, and cultural institutions. This was reaffirmed by the 2005 civil society call, uh, which was signed on by more than 170 civil society organizations from women's organizations to trade unions to academic, religious, and cultural institutions representing every facet of historic Palestine as well as the surrounding camps in the diaspora. Um, and when the call came out, people laughed. You know, the, the cultural boycott was anathema. People were gonna see it as anti-Semitic. It wasn't something uh, that was gonna stick. But eight years on, you've seen a, a great list of artists who have canceled their gigs in Israel, from Bono and Santana and Bjork and Gil Scott Heron and MF Doom and um, the Claxons and the Gorillas and Vanessa Paradis and Cat Power and Cassandra Wilson. Uh, we've seen Hollywood actors uh, pull out of festivals and gigs, including Meg Ryan and Dustin Hoffman. You've seen outward support for cultural boycott from co-founder of Pink Floyd, Roger Waters, Angela Davis, Alice Walker, and Naomi Klein, um, and many others. Last year, we saw uh, Stevie Wonder pull out of the Friends of the IDF dinner out in LA, and Lollapalooza Israel was essentially shut down because they couldn't find enough artists uh, to be a part of it. So the advancement in cultural boycott has been nothing short of remarkable, and it must be viewed within the larger frame of BDS, where more than 20 divestment initiatives are taking place across the United States. Uh, many of them have been favorable. We've seen uh, a rise on academic boycott with the American Studies Association endorsing academic boycott, to the Asian American Studies Association endorsing academic boycott, as well as the Native American and Indigenous Studies uh, Association endorsing academic boycott. You <laughs> no, it's okay. Clapping is fun. Um, and also, uh, recently, you've seen divestment within the Presbyterian Church, which has more than two million uh, members. Um, which is set like Zionists into a tizzy, and they're like all angry, and it's like, oh, you're hurting my feelings, and why can't we just eat hummus and build a fucking settlement? Um, so anyway, was that panel to the last poem? No, no, that or was 10 has passed. Oh, okay. The first yeah. I got to get in uh, conference mode. So, um, yeah. Go over. I did. So, cultural boycott campaigns also have been surrounding up throughout the world. You've had more than 500 artists in Montreal sign on to cultural boycott, 240 in Ireland, uh, 150 in Switzerland, and more than 250 in the U.S. I'm currently working on a cultural boycott campaign, a local campaign uh, in New York City. We'll be launching that soon, and I'll have awesome material for you. Um, but most recently, I linked up with a group in New York City called the BDS Arts Coalition. Um, and they mounted a campaign within the contemporary arts world. So we've done really well with like rock musicians and theater, uh, but we haven't as much kind of breached within the United States in, in terms of the contemporary art world. So the group formed in response to an exhibit that's being shown at Israel's Technion University called Life is Form uh, Nomadic Version. 
Um, and so it's, it's curated by Creative Time and independent uh, curators international. Um, and Creative Time had gotten into a bit of a mess a couple years ago uh, on the culture boycott front. I can tell some more people about that afterwards. Um, but essentially, uh, they didn't let the artists know that their work was being featured in the exhibit until it was actually being featured at Technion University. So there's a cultural component uh, that, and a lot of the artists were shocked. Uh, there's a cultural component here at play, but then there's also the academic boycott because it's being shown at Technion University. Um, and so Technion University is an institutional target of academic boycott. It's grossly complicit with the occupation and apartheid apparatus. Uh, Technion receives funding from Elbit Systems. It has a full cooperation policy with Homeland Security projects. They develop drones for military use, uh, as well as uh, technologies on the US-Mexico border. Uh, it trains engineers to work specifically with weapons manufacturers. And its researchers develop technology that enhance the siege on Gaza. Um, so the BDS Arts Coalition came out with an open letter calling on the artists to pull out of their gigs. Um, so a lot of people signed on um, from uh, 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 Judith Butler to Lucy Lepard to Brian Holmes, who I think is here today, um, to uh, Willie Dry, TJ Demos, and many others. Six of the artists who were featured in the exhibit pulled out of the exhibit. Mm -hmm. And another ten artists who were part of the larger Life as Form that was touring internationally signed on to the open letter calling on them to, to cancel. And then there was about 15 BDS organizations internationally signed on calling on them um, to, to pull out. And so on the cultural boycott front, what we can say clearly is that it's working, it's having an impact, it's making waves, uh, and most importantly, it's scaring the hell out of Israel. Uh, from governments to think tanks to the Israeli media, uh, there isn't a single sector within Israeli society that doesn't talk about the impact of BDS and cultural boycott. Mm -hmm. You have the Reut Institute, which is an Israeli think tank, that talks about BDS and cultural boycott as a great delegitimizer. Now, we're not trying to delegitimize a, a people, but a system of oppression, so I see that as a nice pat on the back. Um, and then you have, uh, you know, if, if you hear the flock of seagulls or another American artist on a toto that hasn't had like a hit in 30 years uh, is going over and playing inside of the state of Israel, the way that like Ynet and J-Post and Haaretz and other newspapers will cover it is like John Lennon is coming back from the dead and playing in a stadium in Tel Aviv. Um, yeah, basically. And so you have under-resourced volunteers from New York to London to Montreal to Dublin to Haifa to Nablus um, that are putting in countless hours and have achieved cultural boycott victory after cultural boycott victory. We've continued support from our brothers and sisters in South Africa. Palestinians have a decades-long uh, connection with, uh, with black South Africans, particularly during the, the anti-apartheid struggle. Um, and I was just there in, in September uh, working with BDS South Africa and, and other groups. And they were like, look, your BDS movement eight, nine years on is much further along than R was if you look at the start from the 1950s to uh, the late 1980s and early 1990s. Um, but I would say that you know we still need to inject even more culture and art and creativity into our movement. Now whether mm -hmm. that's spoken word, whether that's art, whether that's hip hop, whether that's theater, whether that's street actions that have a creative bent, uh, you know, a strong activist movement has to be complemented uh, and taken with a strong arts movement, right? Um, and, and Alex eloquently put a lot of uh, the brilliant artists historically and currently uh, who have been engaged in that process. Um, and, and the mainstream media very much tries to kind of compartmentalize and segregate us and say that you're an artist and you're a politician and, and you know, the two are very much interrelated. Um, so perf before performing a, a last piece, I'll kind of wrap up on a, a personal note. Like I quite literally became a poet because I was moved by poets. Right? My brother and sister took me to go see Deaf Poetry Jam on Broadway in 2004. Mm -hmm. It was the first time I saw poets like Palestinian poets who her Hamad perform live, Stacey and Chen, so many other people that were talking uh, about social justice and in including Palestine in that message. Uh, and for me, like I went home thinking I was a freelance writer at the time, writing on US militarism in Palestine. And I felt like the average 19-year-old didn't necessarily want to read an op-ed in a newspaper and hopefully didn't want to watch racist cable news. Um, but they would listen to a hip-hop track and they would listen to uh, a, a spoken word piece. Um, so spoken word was a way in which I could get a political activist message across through uh, a cultural medium. Um, 
And when I first started performing on college campuses about seven years ago, you could barely say the word Palestine without being called an anti-Semite, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Uh, the discourse has shifted so much. Today, you have more than 125 Students for Justice in Palestine chapters mm -hmm. on college campuses. Um, we clap for that. I love SJP. You know, you're seeing a lot more coalition building. So some of the same folks that were working from divestment from the prison industrial complex at UCLA were pushing for divestment. Um, you had the same, some of the same people that were working for divestment at UC Santa Barbara. Uh, we're also working on a resolution standing in solidarity with undocumented communities and undocumented rights. Um, some of the same people at Washington University uh, that brought me out were also doing overnight sit-ins and got arrested, uh, um, challenging Peabody Energy on campus. Um, or when you look at the actual weapons manufacturing like Elbit Systems that does work on the US-Mexico border and also on the wall in Palestine or G4S working on prisons in here and in, uh, in Ireland in the UK and in Palestine. There's many uh, uh, intersections that, that, that should be highlighted. Um, and so one of the best groups uh, I've connected with in, in New York City is called a group called Adela New York. And so they're a local uh, BDS group. And they've done a lot of brilliant campaigns against Lev Levayev, uh, who also heads Africa Israel, so diamond mining in Gola and also building settlements in, in the West Bank. Um, but they also do a lot of flash mobs, direct actions, um, and, and street actions. And, and just about every event that I, that I go to, there's the integration of spoken word. There's chanting, there's singing, uh, there's drumming. They have BDS Christmas carols where they go to shops uh, and travel around the city and try to get them to de-shelve. Um, and, and it's one of those things where like, if you're in Times Square or you're in the village, um, you know, if, you're, if it's just a monotone chant or it's a people handing out a flyer or holding up a sign, it's not as, 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 as engaging as when, you know, people see the spectacle or they see this piece of art on display and they're immediately kind of drawn to it. Um, so whenever I'm at a two or three or four day conference, I think about those things. We're meeting, we're building, we're eating, we're connecting, we're, we're trying to craft something uh, better going forward. And, and, and art really, I think, is integral to that process. And look, I'm a fucking angry Palestinian poet, but I also like to smile. Uh, you know, and, and I also like to get creatively angry. You know, so like when I see other political art or when I think, uh, you know, I wasn't as much taken by Palestinian poets like uh, Mahmoud Darwish growing up, it was more Palestinian intellectuals like Edward Said and socially conscious hip hop. Mm -hmm. So it's, yeah. it's, it's like we're all coming from different places within society um, and there are other beautiful movements, even when we look at like art is over here and politics is over here and like coalition building is over here and media is over here, like it's really fucked up how if you don't integrate all of them, you're not going to have a stronger movement, you're not going to mm -hmm. be building, you're going to be a one issue type of person and there's a lot of shit going on in the US um, and, and, and outside of it that we really need to be tackling. Um, so I think cultural boycott um, and just using integrating the arts in general is a solid way uh, to help that process. So I'm going to end with this piece. It's called, This Divestment Bill Hurts My Feelings. <laughs> um, and I'm trying to do two pieces. I'm performing tomorrow night, but I'm trying to do two pieces that I'm not performing tomorrow night. Um, basically, like, you have a lot of like, students on campus, and it's like, you know, we can't divest because it hurts my feelings, and it makes me feel uncomfortable, and like, you know, we just need to get together and like, have some hummus, and like, an apartheid wall will fall. Uh, it doesn't really work like that. Um, so I wrote this piece, and, and one of the voices is from like the, the anti-BDS kind of voice, or the anti-divestment voice, and then the other one is like the student slash me. I'm 32, so I'd be like a super duper senior, so that's not happening. But that's where it's coming from. And it's basically debunking a lot of the myths and misconceptions around divestment. You should see my voice change. This divestment bill, it hurts my feelings. That caterpillar bulldozer ended life in the body of an American citizen, drove her bones into the ground while a company cashed in on the sale. The claws of D9 bulldozers unearthed the livelihood of occupied Palestinians, uprooting their graveyards to make way for illegal settlements. But we need a positive campus climate. While HP stock rises on division, producing technology to segregate Palestinians, biometric IDs at checkpoints, enhancing the naval blockade of an open-air prison, Palestinians on campus listen to words like climate, positive, hurt feeling, knowing their tuition invests in companies raining terror on loved ones. 
That's suffering. Like their voices. It's non-existent to student board members looking for cushy jobs at top five law firms. But this divestment bill, it's divisive. The Montgomery bus boycott, divisive. The great boycott, one-sided. Abolishing slavery, radical. Nelson Mandela, a terrorist. Indigenous, savages, women's suffrage, complicated, desegregation, provocative. Hiroshima security, internment camps of necessity, Bantustan's autonomy, Iraq liberation, Palestine barren. There is always, always gonna be an excuse. Catchphrases, talking points, strip away names and faces. We are being militant, unreasonable. There is context to this oppression. The word apartheid makes you feel uncomfortable. It's apartheid by definition, fits a 73 convention. By law, it is a crime against humanity. Two sets of laws for two people, labor, land ownership, access to education, 50 laws of discrimination, 46 years of occupation, 27,000 homes demolished, nearly a million arrested in 67. Whoa, whoa, whoa. No one said Israel doesn't have problems. <laughs> <laughs> But why the singling out on campuses? You mean like Darfur? <laughs> Tibet? South Africa? Sweatshops, Coca-Cola, animal testing, the Keystone Pipeline, the prison industrial complex, fossil fuels, teacher unions, university cuts, and bottled water? The real question, why are you singling out any injustice for protection? Let me get the, the next one for you. Israel is democratic. <laughs> democratic like Coal is clean, Miller Lite is the same great tasteless filling, and McDonald's salads, and McDonald's salads are healthy. <laughs> These are not imagined scenarios. Our tuition dollars are profiting off of death. Divestment is the next step. This is not about a nation or a people, but what's being done to people in our names, with our currency. This university will not liberate anyone, but it can choose to cease making a buck off of misery. Vote yes for divestment, no to appeasement. Affirming injustice isn't positive for any climate. The preceding program was a production of WeAreMany.org, a website dedicated to publishing radical and activist media that promotes a better understanding of today's world while also putting forward a vision for a better future. We Are Many is a project of the Center for Economic Research and Social Change. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out WeAreMany.org. Thank you.